welcome to The Design Podcast. I'm Ashton Snook, and this is the show where we connect you with the creators and makers behind some of today's best-known brands and products. Today, we're joined by the internationally renowned designer, Ghani Amit. I'm almost certain you would have come across his work. More likely, you have it in your home or you have it on your wrist right now. For more than two decades, Gaddy has been shaping consumer technology at his New Deal Design Studio in San Francisco, where he and his team have created iconic products for Dell, Comcast, AT&T, Google, and of course, Fitbit. With over 100 design awards, named Master Design by the Fast Company magazine, and winner of the US National Design Award, we are absolutely delighted to have him on the show and help us launch this podcast. Hi there. Hi, how are you doing, Gaddy? Very good. Thanks so much for connecting and uh, coming on the show. Uh, you're welcome. I always love talking about design and um, yeah, it's, uh, it's nice to, to have that opportunity. Excellent. Uh, maybe we should start with Noodle Design, given you've been running the studio for what, best part of 20 years now? Yeah, we just uh, turned 21. Um, we wanted to celebrate the 20th anniversary and then COVID arrived. So <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so we'll probably uh, celebrate a little bit later. Yeah. Yeah. So New Deal is based in, in, in San Francisco. Yep, it is. Uh, we got about 20, 25 people. It was set um, as a small studio to begin with. And, and I think the spirit of a small studio is something very important for me. It means that uh, it is somewhat of a, an egalitarian creative uh, community. Um, I still get to sketch. I still get to, um, you know, fold paper and do some model making and so on. And that's uh, very much ingrained into uh, whatever we do, um, including uh, expansion into uh, areas like ex- uh, strategy or experience design or very engineering. Uh, the sense of hands-on um, is very much uh, part of the culture. As a matter of fact, some of the experience designers um, had to be convinced at the beginning to um, uh, take pen to paper and actually doodle and sketch rather than uh, typing uh, notes or uh, writing uh, post-its. So uh, that's something that is uh, very important for me. The, the, I would say the more visual expression rather than the verbal expression. Hmm. Or uh, later, if we're dealing with a, a physical product, uh, more of a I would say craftsmanship uh, expression rather than a notional expression. I believe also it is actually a a very efficient way of um, solving problems. So that's a a long story, but I I developed some kind of a theory, I call it the wisdom of the hand, uh, that uh, relates to the connection between the hand and the mind. Mm. And uh, the dialogue that actually allows uh, people solving problems through um you know a feedback loop between a, a sketch or a doodle and a analysis and, and and synthesis of ideas in the mind so uh that's in an essence the studio we are socially oriented at the i would say the main middle of society uh, we don't do luxury products um i would call it nearly by definition. Mm. Um, We're also oriented uh, towards the digital revolution that I see it as uh, a real uh, transformational revolution that uh, to some degree 
many in the design world see that as somewhat of a superfluous layer. Um, you know, you will still hear people talking about gadgets and so on. And it's true that there's quite a lot of, um, I would say, uh, scrap, if you wish, yeah. uh, in the digital domain. But it, it, it is so to just about uh, any other domain of design. You know, there are a lot of crappy chairs. You know? <laughs> so true. Uh, so if you take these um, um, three pillars, a sense of a studio, a hands-on, egalitarian, everybody is um, learning um, to work by hand, a hand-mind connection. By the way, no account managers. That's another thing. Okay. No, no big uh, hierarchy of um, uh, executive directors or a variety of things like that. So that's one pillar. Second pillar being focused on the mainstream uh, of society and solving problems that are relevant for most humans, not uh, dealing with um, gallery work or uh, you know luxury products. And the third pillar is the digital. Uh, so these are the the essence of what we're trying to do and 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 been doing quite successfully for the last 20 so years. I love that notion of having that raw connection with your hand sketching stuff and just letting your mind, I guess, flow the thoughts out onto paper in a really rough and fluid way. Yeah, but it's it's actually, it's, it's more than that. I do think that the more complex the problem, the more uh, verbalizing it is uh, a limiting uh, factor. So we're dealing with a, a lot of problems that are more or less a, a product or experience that is wrapped within a system solution. Nowadays, we even deal with the systems themselves, but the, 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 the holistic uh, you know, system thinking is very relevant to what we do. And I do think that there is something about um, uh, sketching and uh, interpreting a sketch and reinterpreting a sketch and by the way, when I say sketch, I want to be very clear. These are not necessarily styling sketches. These are uh, doodles of human situations or uh, a storyboard, if you wish, uh, if you wish of, of an experience. So one of my um, biggest triumphs, if you wish, is to um, take uh, quote-unquote UX, UI designers and, and, and teach them to uh, write little cartoons of uh, experiences that really uh, help us a lot in, in defining um, interactions. So um, I, I believe that the more complex the problem, the uh, visualizing it or physicalizing it, if you wish, by prototypes, mock-ups, uh, doodles is, is, is essential and uh, really solves a lot of complex problems. Um, so. And I got to say, on a different level, I got to say that I think the educational system in the West uh, has shunned and, uh, you know, downplayed the role of the hands, uh, whether it's craft or thinking through visuals and uh, glorified the quote unquote STEM thinking. And that's to the detriment of uh, many people on a very personal psychological level. But I think it's uh, beyond that, it's to the detriment of the quality of the solutions and the quality and efficiency of um, uh, 
working on solutions. So that is a, a, a pretty, pretty <laughs> strong uh, belief that I have. And actually, uh, it relates very um, strongly to my background. I was um, born to a, a family of architects that is very, uh, you know, ingrained in, in hands-on work. But at the same time, I uh, grew up in an environment that uh, educationally was very much oriented towards math, science, and so on. And I was good at that. So I, I do have the benefit that I could say that when I was in high school, I was at uh, you know a, a very very high level of uh, math, physics, uh, chemistry, and so on. Which, by the way, I forgot <laughs> a lot of. But you, you do get the the principles. Yeah. So you know, a lot of my peers went up to be you know uh, scientists or you know chief technologists or things like that. So I, I, I did a switch uh, in my early twenties when I went to an art school and um, never looked back. But uh, <laughs> that's um, understanding that that I need to walk into a room nearly on a daily basis and talk to people who were groomed really from young age, from age five or six. Not only to think that math, science, and analytics is the only way, is that any other way is inferior. That, that is the, the real issue today, I think. And when we look at, at, at issues related to big tech companies on a societal and political level, or issues related to um, AI or autonomous vehicles and so on, I believe that there is a component that is very uh, personal and psychological about the people who are leading these companies or leading these efforts that uh, not only that they are blind to, um, I would say, more poetic narrative uh, way of solving problems or, or creative hands-on visuals as, as, as I do, I think they're actually thinking it's um, at best a superfluous uh, coat of veneer that doesn't really matter. They actually think it's an inferior, inferior uh, set of paradigms or, or thinkings. So th that is a, a big problem, I think. And actually, they, they suffer because of that. You know, I don't want to start dealing with uh, examples, but I do think that they are suffering due to that. Yeah, I, th I think you're right as well. I mean, it's one of the um the frictions that I've experienced in my career, and I've, I've heard from many peers and colleagues as well, there's a there's certainly an underappreciation for the craft, the ability to pick something up and manipulate it and get it across in a really simple way, as we would do as children, where it's just more around play. Um, and there's, there's almost like an oppressive nature in a lot of corporations and companies, even young companies now, um, where it seems that artistry is lost. And unless there are hard KPIs that you can drive into every element, uh, it's almost seen as, you know, the kids in a corner colouring in, which as a designer is almost soul destroying and so disconnected from the human experience, which is ultimately what makes the companies work or, or, or fail. Yeah, and I think that it's a, it's a, it's a big societal issue um, that is really not being discussed a lot. I think even in uh, you know educational uh, policies or um, social uh, social justice policies and so on, you you come back and uh, to to the same perspectives of creating. Um, money one way or another through a mechanism that is inherently um, 
analytical uh, based on science and math rather than on on, on culture uh, narrative or craft um, I, I know that what I'm saying now is, is, is maybe uh, difficult to parse but I would just uh, give one example I think the notion that every person could become a programmer through some kind of um, a training or a correct educational uh, program or investment is a complete uh, fallacy. I do think that uh, people may find themselves succeeding in becoming a programmer, but really suffering on a personal psychological level from, from that. And I do think that a lot of people should be um, finding happiness in, 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 in creating things through their hands or um, you know, uh, crafts or other professions that are just uh, underappreciated in society, uh, again, in Western society or Westernizing societies. And that's, uh, that's a, it's a big societal problem. And so I, I um, that's kind of very, we got ourselves into this kind of very <laughs> deep trench. It's <laughs> a good trench, it's a good trench. Uh, <laughs> Uh, let's get out of it, though. But, uh, you know, I, I do think that design uh, has uh, and the act of design is uh, has a lot of good things that it does in terms of how you think about uh, problems and also uh, how you feel about what you do in life uh, on a very personal psychological level. Yeah, I couldn't. I couldn't agree more. And to looping back to to the studio and this idea of and hand and mind as a yeah. as a as a culture of creating, is there something that starts to humanize that experience more for the creator as well, as well as the the client that may receive that information? So you're, you're communicating an idea in what sounded to me a bit like um, its purest form, a simple image to communicate a complex idea. What we are trying to do is to bring um, people who are gifted uh, with their hands and, and their hand-mind connection to be at the front of the interaction with the client and with the problem. So we're not hiding the creative genius in the back uh, room and, and sending the suits to talk to the client. So that interaction and that dialogue uh, between the client and uh, and the uh, creative um, people is something that I think um, is somewhat. I would say first, it, it's somewhat risky. Let's put it like that. There is there are people who are better in communicating, and there are people who are learning to become better in communicating. And I could say on myself that through the years, I became a lot better at communicating. I was more of an introvert doing my thing, quote-unquote. And, and convincing the client uh, was a, a difficult thing. So first, it's, it's a risky proposition. But second, I do think that the clients, uh, the clients really appreciate that. Really appreciate it. And we have many clients that stayed with us for many years. I think one of the hidden stories behind New Deal is that we've had multiple long-term relationships of like five, seven, ten years. For instance, Fitbit is one of them. Ten years working in the same company. Incredible. In today's world, in the digital domain, it's really unheard of. 
No, it really, it really is unheard of. And that's because of that quality of dialogue that is based on bringing amazing creativity or creative uh, personalities directly into the room to, for instance, talk to the CEO of Fitbit. On a daily basis, it was like so. So that 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 is uh, uh, a different way of doing things, and that um, really sets us apart from very large design agencies that are global and and, and have usually a very very complex layer of management, and also from uh, I would say the more arts and crafts uh, little boutiques that um, again are somewhat hierarchical and usually around one persona. Um, people really don't get it that in UDL, uh, you could be an intern and if your idea is better, I will sketch um, technical solutions for it. It, it is a real thing, you know, mm. so it's an absolute wow. <laughs> egalitarian system. You know, obviously, uh, with the seniority, uh, the seniority is not just um, uh, about time. This is, you know, people who are very good at what they do. So our design director is usually better than the intern. <laughs> but uh, every once in a while, uh, there is, uh, uh, you know, uh, a spark of uh, genius that hits and, and we all uh, support it. That's That sounds like a... Rough. An amazing culture to be in, and, and so so. I mean, I, I worked. I started my my own career in, in startups where I was directly working with the CEO because we were, we were a five, six, ten person company by nature. And I moved into into the agency world, and it was quite hierarchical. We had the traditional: there was an account manager, and you didn't speak to the client unless you went through them. Um, and at the same time, there was a one opportunity. We were working with a, a big global bank. I won't say won't say who it was. Um, but it was like a, a three million pound uh, contract for us. It was quite substantial for the size of a company, um, and I was thrown in without any word of warning to pitch an idea that I'd been given thirty minutes before at like twenty one, <laughs> yeah. which was an amazing opportunity. But my God, I didn't. I was not prepared, and I really stuffed it up. <laughs> so, I know it's stressful. It is stressful, and especially if it's a complex problem, and it could be you could find yourself being uh, interrogated on questions you never had and you know, to uh, think about earlier, earlier and so on, never had an opportunity to do that. So we, we don't do that. So we, we actually, you know, control the experience and the exposure uh, to the client in a way that it's gradual. Mm. Uh, I do think that the first five years are of, of work out of school are, are very formative, actually maybe even more formative than the actual design education. There's a, a lot of internal processes of understanding your uh, way of things, uh, creating uh, an object, uh, physical, digital, and then understanding the, the organization of a project. You know, most of uh, it's an interesting. We also, I mean, design, we take for granted the entity called the project. Most of, most of the world doesn't work on projects that are, you know, three, six months or a year. It has a, a cycle. It has a, essentially a rhythm you, you need to adjust yourself to. Uh, it's a little bit like a football uh, player. They need to know that they have a 90-minute run and then they have it every Saturday or, or Sunday or something like that. It's a, it's a rhythm. So 
So learning the, the entity or the, the, the object of a project, uh, how to deal with it is something that takes years. Yeah, that's, that, that is very true. Um, yeah, <laughs> projects. I mean, the first five years I was in, I bounced around a lot. And depending on who you ask, it's a good or a bad thing. But I, I found that exposure being in the company for one, two years at a time um, helped me maybe mature a little bit faster than colleagues of mine who'd been in the same organization for 10 years yep. because you get exposed to all these different types of cultures and pressures. And and uh, I think it just pushes you to look at things. Yep. Um, but yeah, about five years in is where I started to get quite comfortable with myself and being able to converse my ideas with you know greater confidence. Mm-hmm. As you uh-huh. say, it just takes, takes some time. It takes time. It takes practice. Um, and it takes perspective. You know, the one thing I do... Uh, um, reflected on on my career when I was in a large agency was that the better I got and the better I felt about what I do in design, I was pushed uh, further into executive roles. And that's somewhat of an irony that sometimes the, the better people, the people who get to um, go up and, and manage more are actually more remote from the actual design work in agencies, large agencies. And that's something I wanted to uh, counter. And I, I feel like I, I got a very good balance uh, with that. Yeah. Was that part one of the motivations for New Deal was to have that control and still stay hands-on in the design process whilst grow a team? Uh, yeah, I mean, th- th- this is obviously was um, a major part of my decision to to leave a very large agency and start my own um, little uh, uh, agency. <laughs> um, and and there was something more fundamental, as I mentioned earlier. I do think that the hands-on uh, connection to the problem was really essential to creating a solution and a good solution. So the, it was directly interfering, being, being an executive in a large uh, agency was directly interfering with the quality of the product I was supposed to hand over to the client. Basically, I'm doing better design and New Deal is doing better design because of these uh, um, organizational practices. It wasn't that uh, I wanted to have my name uh, out there or wanted to make more money or something like that. Honestly, this is uh, that got um, I got that a lot later. It was really about the, the, I felt confined and unable to create a better solution because um, I didn't have enough role in um, selecting or talking to the clients right at the get-go through the project, uh, layers of account management and so on, and also the the actual, uh, you know, ground level crafts work, which was uh, relegated to um, uh, younger, sometimes inexperienced or sometimes less talented uh, people. So that that is uh, essentially the the concept behind what I was trying to do with the New Deal. 
Yeah, and it's um, it's I think the really important thing for anyone listening to this is also definitely doable. And beyond that, I mean the the amount of success you you've achieved over the, the last couple of decades with New Deal, how you've grown that, the clients that you've you've uh, worked with, um, the amount of awards you've picked up. It's very clear that as you grow a team and as you develop and mature, as you have done, that it's almost essential and critical to your own creative process and also to the success of what you've achieved to stay hands-on and still stay a designer, not just become a manager of designers. Yeah, and I do think that if you look at it uh, more objectively uh, objectively, uh, uh, across the board, I do think that uh, above 50 or 60 people, agencies uh, change character. Um, And the quality of the product goes down. Uh, I don't want to name names, but I do think that there is a level that uh, of connectedness, if you wish, in a studio of 20, 30, 40 people, maybe 50, that is there, that you have enough uh, diversity of uh, talents and, and, and professions, if you wish, that creates, uh, uh, and, and yet they are all connecting uh, very well with the problem and with each other. So the quality of the solution is, is really high. And I do think that when uh, agencies grow and become very large, and with that, managerial layers are uh, developing. Uh, the quality of their solutions is, is lower. Um, unfortunately, uh, the world, uh, large economic uh, organizations or governments love to work with uh, large organizations. So you don't get to... Um, it's a problem of how do you get the the right projects, uh, even though they're relatively small uh, agency. Yeah. yeah, I think I think that's very true. There's something about the um, bums and seats almost that <laughs> attracts some clients. Um, but I think there's something really interesting in, in what you're saying, and something that admittedly I took some inspiration from a talk I'd I'd seen from someone who used to work with Steve Jobs at Apple. All about the power of small teams. But actually, one of the things we've tried to maintain um, in the last two positions when I've been leading and and growing a team essentially was to try and select, you know, five, six, 10 really good people and then cap it out. And that seemed to me, you know, looking after that team to to really result in real meaningful relationships between the designers and the researchers. And that contributed to an incredibly high standard and a much smaller level than what you've demonstrated with New Deal. But the app you know, we free X the remit of the team through that approach and we free X the amount of awards and actually the app ratings through that approach and, and the sales were going up as well. So I think there is something very true about knowing how far to grow and then saying that's enough because we've we've kind of got that perfect incubation for, for great great creativity. Yeah, you mentioned Apple and it's uh, an obvious example that usually is overlooked. Uh, I think the Apple Design Studio is roughly the size of New Deal, roughly 20 people, 25 people. They obviously have a lot of support uh, in engineering and, and so on. Uh, the relationship um, between the very top of the management and the senior designers have been, uh, you know, exceptionally close. And, you know, the quintessential leader of Apple has not been a geek. I mean, he's, he's been uh, more of a you know, uh, liberal arts uh, person than uh, a scientist and so on, if we're talking about the late um, Steve Jobs. Uh, it, it's funny, when uh, he passed away, um, I got to 
uh, be asked multiple times by uh, you know writers and media uh, what's my reflection on design what's going to ha- design of apple or what's going to happen and i said you know really pay attention uh, he is um nearly the only liberal arts uh, person who led a company of that magnitude and built a company through that the management um, hierarchy of the company is entirely different than the typical tree it's actually a lot more uh, centralized and and focused on on a relationship between him and and four five six ten people among them uh, Johnny Ive and so on and, and nobody took note of that you know and that's uh, an, an, an interesting perspective I, I do think that to some degree Tesla is managed the same way um, so um, yeah so just a reflection on what we've been told about the proper management of large corporations um, yeah. Are, uh, yeah. basically are not it's, uh, true. It's I, I guess that kind of ties into that the trench we were digging ourselves into earlier run around STEM and the lack of focus on education support for the arts and the creativity and the hands-on skills um, but that's a great great site and actually Steve Jobs was you know not in the STEM category but arguably built you know the world's most successful commercially um, and, you know one of the highest quality product companies in the world yeah and I think his only academic experience was uh, calligraphy uh, class he took at Reed College uh, people who don't know Reed I could say that's the most liberal arts college you could think of actually my daughter uh, went there it's it's a very <laughs> Very, very far away from MIT. Let's put it like that. <laughs> cool. Yeah. Um, looping back to some of your works, I wanted to really get into, I mean, the, the thing that I found most inspiring, I thought we could maybe connect on is the amount of work um, and progress you've driven personally with, with New Deal around the interconnection to physical and digital and technically around the connected world. Um, and there, obviously there's multiple products, but one of the uh, relationships that would be it's poor for me to ignore is obviously that 10-year relationship with Fitbit and I wondered if you perhaps wanted to dive into a little bit of that experience of both the relationship how you grew that and maybe talk about some of the the learnings as a as a design problem moving from a a clip-on pedometer to you know that very refined high-end jewelry look and feel that you you managed to to give them yeah so that's obviously a, a, a very central piece of career and, and, and the work that New Deal has done. And I'm really proud of it. And I'm really proud that Fitbit became a synonymous with a category. Obviously, the, the founders, um, Eric and James, done a phenomenal job. Um, both very humble people. And um, I think it was a, a very beautiful story of, of a design and relationship. Um, so where, where to, I mean, when I'm trying to kind of uh, look at it historically and, and, and break it down, there is a story about um, uh, taking uh, a notion, an idea, and making it into a product and then scaling it. That was very... Uh, uh, essential to Fitbit, you know, it started from next to nothing with really little money and grew to be a, a, you know, billion dollar company and so on. Uh, There's another story of uh, software guys uh, making hardware 
which is quite common today, but at that time it was actually very, um, uh, very unique. Uh, there's a story of uh, creating electronics that is uh, personal and, and, and actually the beginning very personal uh, to people because it dealt with uh, body image, uh, weight, and actually originally was geared towards women, which was also a kind of counterpoint uh, to a lot of messages in the industry that were very masculine or male-oriented and so on. So um, the interesting element about Fitbit at the beginning was to try to do something different. Most people don't understand that when Fitbit came to life, there was already a category called a pedometer that were selling cheap, ugly gadgets by the millions. And it was there. You know, and there were few competitors, uh, serious ones coming into the world of connecting those pedometers into the internet. Uh, I think I think there was a Philips program, there was an Adidas program, um, Nike and Apple already had a collaboration called Nike Plus that put um, a sensor in uh, a pocket inside the sole of your shoe and so on. All these were there. So, uh, and yet Fitbit um, uh, managed to carve out a niche and actually a sec eventually a category on its own. I think what uh, worked very well was understanding the human element of uh, using uh, that uh, device. And that include few counterintuitive assumptions that we made that turned out to be spot on. Uh, the first is that the product needs to be somewhat hidden. And it was an entirely um, different assumption. You know, people who may remember pedometers, they were kind of a belt clip that was flaunting to the outside with usually with an ugly LCD that counted uh, numbers and we decided to hide the, the Fitbit and not only hide it we created a theory we call the introvert UI and still today uh, the Fitbit that I have is uh, basically the screen shows nothing you need to ask it to actually show you something so uh, that's, uh, uh, that was not only uh, psychological, but was also uh, excellent for um, saving battery life and so on. Uh, but it had a very deep understanding of uh, behavior around achievements and, 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 and counting steps. And, and, and the point was you can come on board the Fitbit uh, platform without being pushed too hard, picking your own pace be between yourself and the device without others uh, peeking over and, and either shaming you or, or, or pushing you or something like that. And that was really important for women. And the first uh, Fitbit, the clip, was um, very much a female dominant device. 
And I think overall the brand is uh, one of the most um, uh, female-oriented device uh, uh, brands out there in, in the tech business, maybe arguably the most. I'll just put this notion out there. 60% um, of the attachments where you put the Fitbit on your body were uh, bra front and center. The bra right here in the center of the chest. Um, it was sanitized um, internally to be called BFC, <laughs> the position bra front and center. Uh, for a long while, uh, we had a collection of, I think, hundreds of bras in the, in the office trying to deal with different uh, structures and trying to make sure that the clip work on all, um, on all combinations. So that was uh, really, I think, uh, a phenomenal and an intuitive, by the way, very intuitive uh, achievement at the beginning. Uh, and um, it was not supported by um, any research that you could have done. It was done by uh, intuition and common sense. And I really credit uh, James and Eric a lot for letting us doing that. And that was a, a runaway success uh, like no other. Uh, I had a variety of cocktail parties where I found myself convincing uh, ladies not to show me the Fitbit coming out of their bra. I mean, the most... Uh, interesting uh, moment I had was actually uh, later on we got um, the National Design Award um, at the White House and Michelle Obama was a big fan of Fitbit also got the, her husband uh, the president Barack Obama, Obama to, to use Fitbit but um, she came uh, beautifully dressed obviously and and she had it in her bra and she was she's a amazing personality and she was pointing to it and i was breaking protocol immediately and saying no please don't get it out so that was a kind of a moment of uh, we giggled about it and so on so that was uh, that was more or less the first five years of fitbit if you wish kind of the the, the aura uh, of that uh, product and the clips and and women and their story of uh, getting in in shape or losing few pounds and so on um and then came I think that the, the, the later five years were about scaling and growth and, and trying to uh, appeal to different crowds. Uh, people who are more fitness oriented, and more masculine and, you know, just do it. And, and, and that, that crowd on one end and uh, same time, people who just wanted uh, a more refined, a small uh, piece of uh, digital accessory, if you wish, that will just disappear into their uh, fashion. And we started exploring uh, more and more materials and more and more solutions, started dealing with uh, interactions and, and, and screen sizes on one end. At the same time, what is the smallest fit that you could do? And I think today 
uh, well, they killed the product, obviously, eventually. But uh, the, one of the smallest uh, wearables that we've done was, um, uh, I think, the Flex 2. It was really teeny and could have gotten into uh, jewelry pieces. And this was a, a, an amazing a, an amazing story. And I think um, after we left, um, at the end of... So they went IPO. And part of that was a de the determination by the board of directors that all critical functions need to be inside the company. And that means that they needed to open and to build a new design team. And, and we helped doing that. And then uh, they also start um, having uh, major competition that the last two years have been already kind of uh, a little bit downhill. Uh, you know, we handed off stuff to the design team, the internal design team, uh, the numbers were not doing well and so on. But I'm really, um, uh, really happy that uh, they found home at, at, at Google with all the, with all what it comes with. <laughs> um, <laughs> and, and yeah, it's, um, it's uh, it's a device that I'm still using, you know, and and uh, you know even the device that I'm using has some uh, very strong elements of our design language and so on. You know, at the end of the uh, the the work, we were trying to establish a design language that is yes. non-Apple. Uh, it's based more on on geometry. That's a little bit more uh, geometric and and trying to avoid mm -hmm. the quintessential squirrel. Uh, the rounded uh, square. Uh, it was a really uphill battle against not only internal uh, forces, but primarily external forces uh, that couldn't see any other form other than uh, rounded square. And it, this is, to, the, to me today, one of the biggest problems in the industry, <laughs> the, the squirrel. <laughs> A squirrel is the easiest problem. It is actually, it, it, it's it, it's a wrong form for a lot of reasons. Uh, but people got used to it. It's uh, So now every project and every um, design work that I see, I'm always asking myself, yeah. <laughs> why is it squirrel? That's right. Why does it need to be squirrel? Uh, you know, there is an effect to rounding the corner, so it's maybe easier on the hand or easier in the pocket. But then why is the square goal a square goal? You know, there's a certain proportion between the rounded corner and the straight lines. Why couldn't it be, you know, softer? And it's, a, it's a, an unbelievable phenomenon, by the way. There was some beautiful work done, by the way, by Palm that created something like a, a device mm. that was more of a, you know, pebble. Uh, soft, very nice ones. So I, I'm just lamenting that the situation in industry in general, in my view, is not good. Uh, I'm talking about the industrial design situation in general in the world is not good. There are less unique uh, point of views out there. And uh, everything kind of looked the same, if you wish. Yeah. And that's... Um... Uh, so I, 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 myself and my team, we've, we <laughs> have a lot of these debates around um, this sort of centralization of like design styles and, and solutions, and particularly in digital it becomes, it feels often as well, particularly on mobile applications, very constrained because obviously there are, there are a number of frameworks and patterns that people understand. So it's a good solid commercial bet. 
but what we seem to have lost, particularly in the digital space, mm-hmm. is a willingness. Um, I think probably led by the same phenomenon we see with the squirk on the physical side of, well, we know Facebook and Google and Apple have landed on this solution and therefore the stakeholders want to lean into that. There's a little bit of consumer, but I think there's a lot of, well, we've got to we've got to copy X, Y, and Z. And that's and that's forcing so such no. a constrained way of approaching problems. Yeah, I think it's a huge problem. We work with Google for many years. Um, we've done work with the Android group. We've done, obviously, the Google Aura project that was uh, very unique and because of that, I think, got killed. And we also worked with the Chrome group. And it was very clear through interaction with leadership at Google that being different aesthetically mm. was not a value. And they saw that as a, as a negative. Uh, commonality and being kind of blending in was a, a value at that time that they wanted to um, imbue. And it was seen as, that's my reflection, it was seen as, as, a, a, as the path of list, list resistance and, and as if any, any unique Aesthetic is um, a, a risk, an unnecessary risk, and and I think that is the the mindset that tech world now has. Yeah, uh, risk mitigation means um, no exceptional colors, not exception, no exceptional forms. Yeah, no exceptional concepts. Period. Uh, I'm talking about uh, design wise, and that crosses physical and digital all the way. Mm. And it's it's um, it's a kind of a monoculture. Um, it has a very uh, strong impact on the world. Um, even like in fashion, there's this discussion over norm core and you know elements like that. And I do think that it's counter to humanity. Humanity is diverse. Yeah. Uh, you know, you do remember people by their uniqueness not by their sameness so to speak that's so true yeah but that's uh that's something that bothers me and i'm I'm always trying to you know push beyond um you know which is something that is very much uh, ingrained into new deals trying to push the envelope yeah always trying to push further uh sometimes we we are losing clients like that and uh, but over years i think we we intentionally made our name as hey we every once in a while bring a runaway success so there is value behind uh trying to push yeah undoubtedly it kind of loops back into that earlier conversation of of stem and what i think you've broken the mold a bit with when you talk about the org structure at new deal if we are constantly pushing in society people to focus in the STEM category and we're taking those people and they're moving them up and they are then making very analytical decisions, is it is it by nature from education into career, into the exec world where it's analytical thinking that might be driving this sense of we're not, we're resistant to pushing the mold and, and breaking boundaries and we we're quite happy to have things looking the same because the people making those decisions are perhaps more analytic, analytically driven as opposed to emotionally driven. Absolutely. Absolutely. I do think, I mean, even, you know, Elon Musk lately start going after the MBAs. 
you know, some of my best friends are MBAs. <laughs> uh, but I think there is a something about it that comes top down government, uh, who is running the show in government, um, in the bureaucracy, who is running the show in bureaucracy, what is considered to be a good decision making process versus not. Uh, it's always analytical. It's always quote unquote science based, which many cases it's it's not. Mm. Um, it's simply not true in many cases. Uh, I do think that uh, it creates a, a bigger disconnect between the mechanics, if you wish, of a civilized or a civil society and actually the culture of that society. Yeah. And, and that's a big problem. And we see that in uh, political disconnects that happen here in the US and to some degree in Britain. Mm. And um, I think it's a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a problem about, also it's about the quality of the decisions and what, uh, you know, the efficiency, the efficacy of these mechanisms and, and so on. The, the irony of what, what, I'm, what I'm basically saying, the irony is that people who are lamenting efficiency or putting efficiency and, and rational at the top priority usually are not willing to test other theories about how to manage and create solutions that are as efficient, better sometimes on many levels. And I got to say, on that level, I also want to put the finger also on the design world. There are a lot of storytelling and, and egos and, and internal uh, screw-ups of the design world, um, whether it's the galleries or the magazines or the museums and so on. A, a lot of times this notion of uh, superfluous uh, expressions of creativity that is more on the artistic side is being hailed as as this is great design or something like that and to some degree uh, that puts us out of um, designers puts us out of decision making yeah uh, positions i think i think that's very true and i think when you were talking about again the pillars of, of new deal that focus on um creating high quality products but for almost like the everyday and for the for, for the majority of people is something that I think we don't we don't tend to focus on in, in the industry and, and celebrate as as you were saying, which it puts us on a, almost on this pedestal that makes it design feel very unattainable. Which is of course not what we're. I think most of us are looking to try and do in the industry. We're trying to great 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 products, great services that give you know quality and access to as many as we can afford to do so. Yeah, and that's that's uh, an ongoing problem. I mean, I, I I used to say to you know to in, in this pure styling uh, um, of cars, I think it's a lot easier to make a, a fancy Ferrari than making um, a small um, urban car. Just it's it's a lot more complicated to. Um, do something nice or like a, the mini, if you wish, uh, yeah. the quintessentialist achievement. And, and you, you see that all over the map when you're dealing with architecture, there's always like a multi-billion dollar uh, edifice in China that was 
built by Starkitect uh, through a top-down, uh, anti-democratic process involving billions of dollars. And this is hailed to be a massive achievement. Uh, I do think that, for instance, having uh, amazing housing quality of uh, apartments is, is, a, is the quintessential architectural problem of our time. Mm. We started dealing with that, by the way, a little bit as an industrial designers and the entrepreneur who came to us and said, no, I had enough dealing with architects. I want somebody who think about um, the, um, a dwelling as a product and applying uh, product philosophy onto that. Uh, so it, it's a big problem. Uh, and you know, I do think that there is a big disconnect between uh, design academia or the, um, the gatekeepers, whether it's, uh, you know, the museums, the VNAs, the critique, the, the, the few uh, sites that are still dealing with the design, uh, talking about websites and so on. And, and what design should be doing for society in, in the next 50 or 100 years. Yeah, no, absolutely. On, on that topic, you know, as, as, a, as a design community, if we were to try and, try and encourage and push people to, to look as designers, what could we be doing better to help push and change aspects of society? And I guess maybe for, for a lot of us starting to change the cultures and ways of thinking from a company, is there anything that we should be focusing on as, as designers now? It's a very uh, difficult question. To me, uh, I start from a, a perspective of a toolmaker. I think humans became humans because they knew how to make tools. And the act of toolmaking was also always functional as well as emotional or spiritual in some cases. So my focal point for a designer today would be toolmaking. Are you making tools for people to make their life better, whether it's in, in work or in play or in any way, you know? Once you focus on that, then you understand that uh, political aspects of that are somewhat re relevant, but mostly irrelevant to, to what you do if you are trying to really focus about problem solving and tool making. Egos are less important too. Fitting within uh, a certain uh, ism or a theory uh, is less important. So I believe that if there was that level of dedication to the craftsmanship of design, to, to the toolmaking, very much, let's say, like uh, doctors are looking into making a patient's healthy, I think the profession of design would gain a lot more credibility. I think there is a lot of uh, noise around design, whether it's uh, the best thing for the environment and the best thing for social justice or the right thing politically to do or something like that. And, you know, whether it's this style or that style or that, you know, trend or so on. I, I, I think that uh, refocusing is, is, is something that could really lead to uh, a better design community, better appreciation of design and, uh, and, and better results overall. 
Yeah, I couldn't agree more. I couldn't agree more. I know we've we've come to time, unfortunately. Apologies for that, but um, thanks, thanks, thanks for taking part. It was incredible to to hear your perspectives on on the world, and I'm sure so valuable to share with, with so much so of the community. Much. Thank you very much. All right, Gary, I'll leave you to it. Have a great day, and uh, thanks again. Thank you very much. Take care. Bye bye. To learn more about Gaddy's work, head over to newdealdesign.com. And that's it for this episode. If you'd like to learn more, head over to designpodcast.co. If you'd like to support us, please share the episode with friends and family or support us on patreon.com forward slash the design podcast. Take care, guys.